Thank you, Sean and Emily. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name's Travis. I'm one of the pastors here at the village. I didn't introduce myself earlier, and I'm so glad that you're here with us today. Uh, today's a significant day uh, for a lot of reasons. One of them is that um, we have been going through the Gospel of Luke from beginning to end. We started at chapter 1, verse 1, and we've been going straight through. And we started one year ago today, believe it or not. Going, yep, woo. Some of you are like, when are we going to be done? With Luke, well, there's, there's some, we're 17 chapters in, so about three more years in 2027, we're going to wrap up. But uh, today is a day in the Christian calendar, in the Christian liturgical calendar, that's called Christ the King Sunday, and it's the last Sunday of the Christian liturgical calendar. How many of you knew that there was a Christian liturgical calendar? There is one, some of you knew that. That's what I love about this church. We come from a mix of backgrounds, and it's really kind of fun to get to be a part of a church like that. Next Sunday is the first Sunday in the Christian calendar. It's the first Sunday of a season that's known as Advent. Um, the official name, I'll look this up and wrote it down. And the official name of today is the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe Sunday. Who knew that? Okay, I didn't think many of you knew that. Uh, it's simply a recognition of the Christian belief that Jesus is King of the universe and his love and his justice are stronger than any human force. It's a great thing to recognize and celebrate. Uh, and, and next week, like I said, it starts Advent. And if you're familiar with Advent, you've probably experienced it as the season of the year when the Christmas decorations go up, we start to dust off the Christmas songs, and we prepare for Christmas Eve services, and we serve, give, and invite. And uh, the word Advent literally means arrival. And it's got a, a twofold meaning in the church. Uh, the, the first is absolutely about our preparation and our remembrance of the first arrival of Jesus on that very first Christmas morning. But it's the second meaning that's actually the primary meaning of the season of Advent, and that is the rearrival of Jesus. We talk about the rearrival of Jesus. We believe in the church that not only was Jesus born and he lived and he taught and he healed and he was crucified and he died and he rose again, but we believe that at some decisive point in history, Jesus will return to finish what he started. And so today we're gonna to be talking in Luke 17 about this interaction that Jesus has where he talks about the kingdom of God and talks about the, the arrival of that kingdom. And, and if you grew up or you've been, uh, or you've been you know, kind of part of the uh, liturgical church in the past, you probably know these words that are familiar in the communion liturgy that talk about this rearrival of Jesus. And uh, the priest or the pastor might say during communion, let us now proclaim the mystery of faith. If you know it, say it with me. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Again, it looks like about half of the mouths are moving and half of the people are looking at me like you have never heard that before in your life. Uh, it's, it's this often underemphasized belief in the church that Jesus will return again. He's gonna come again to set things right, to put the broken pieces of the world back together. And ultimately we believe that that's a really good thing. Now I say that it's underemphasized, but if you grew up as a Christian teenager in the 90s or the early 2000s, it's possible that it was overemphasized for you. Um, how many of you remember Kirk Cameron on the series Growing Pains? Yeah. Right, Kirk Cameron was Mike Seaver. He lived in this apartment above his parents' garage in the series Growing Pains. A lot of us know Kirk Cameron like that. That'd be the underemphasized side of this. On the overemphasized side, you would know Kirk Cameron from the movie and book series Left Behind. Anybody know Kirk Cameron from that? 
the other half of the hands just went up. It's amazing what happens when the church comes together. Uh, so basically the Left Behind book series and the movie series that Kirk Cameron starred in was kind of all about God snatching the good people away from the earth and everybody else was left behind to deal with the consequences of that. And I know among my own friend group in high school, there was, there was a lot of fear. There was almost hysteria because of the ways that this was, was overemphasized in my friend group. And so a lot of my friends were convinced that the world was going to end. It was going to happen soon. And Jesus was either going to take people home to heaven any day now. You were either going to fly away to be with heaven forever, to fly away to be with Jesus in heaven forever, or you were going to be left behind to burn in hell. It was a really encouraging group of people to be around. Uh, one of the primary expressions of this, at least, at, at least in the South in the late 90s and early 2000s, was what was called a judgment house. Anybody ever been to one of those? I hadn't either, but then I was invited to go to one, and a judgment house was like a Christian haunted house. But instead of, no, I'm serious, I'm serious, you think I'm joking. Uh, happens around Halloween, but instead of, of ghosts and chainsaws, it was filled with depictions of heaven and hell. And so my first semester of college, uh, I was invited by a friend that I'd made, and she invited me to go to this judgment house, and I'd never been to one before. And, and I went in, and what you need to know about me is that um, my... If there's an awkward situation, my default is to go super awkward, right? If something is, if something's a little awkward, some of you know, Austin Teagarden was in my youth group back in the day. He knows this is true. Yeah. If something's a little awkward, my default is just, I'm super awkward. I don't know why, but that's just what I do. And so I was in, I, I got stuck my brain at about 12 years old of development. And so my freshman year of college, my roommate and I got the VHS tape of a Beavis and Butthead movie, and we had been watching that. And I, in that stage of my awkwardness, I would default to doing a, an impression of Butthead. And so I didn't know that the Judgment House wasn't supposed to be interactive, right? And so, so I, I didn't know I'd never been to one. So I was in a room, and Jesus walked up to me, which was pretty awesome, and he just said, welcome home, my son. I felt really awkward, so I went super awkward. And I, before I knew it, I was like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks. It's good to be here. <laughs> right? I, and it was coming out of my mouth, and I was like, I cannot believe I just did a butthead impression of Jesus, and my friend's looking at me like, what are you doing? Anyway, totally beside the point of the story, one of the scenes in the judgment house depicted somebody being rapidly taken up to heaven, and so there was a guy in a room, there's a bright flash of light, suddenly the guy is gone, and there's a pile of his clothes on the floor. In my 18-year-old brain, I was like, a couple things are happening here. Number one, this guy has been taken up to heaven. Number two, is he flying to heaven naked? Like, wouldn't that be cold and really weird? Like, I don't know how this is supposed to work, but anyway, in some branches of Christianity, this was an overemphasis. And there were a lot of things about this. And some of you have experienced that. And then what that led to, I don't know if you've experienced this in our culture right now, but there's a lot of pendulum swinging. And so some people are far on one side. And so some people react and go far to the other side. Anybody experienced that? No, not in 2023. Anyway, so the reaction was uh, to, to that side of, of Christianity, some people really reacted and they were like, I don't want to have anything to do with any of the people over there. And so they just completely ignored huge parts of the Bible that talk about the return of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And, and people were left, me being one of them, people were left to try to figure it out on their own. But here in Luke 17, Jesus has a conversation with the Pharisees about the coming of the kingdom. And since we committed to go straight through the gospel of Luke, 
we have to talk about it this morning. And so here we are, Luke chapter 17. I want to read this interaction. I want to read this interaction. And, and, and then I want to make a few observations about what Jesus says and a few applications that I think are relevant to us today. So this is Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn there or turn on an app and it'll be on the screen. Here it is. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man. When Jesus talks about the son of man, he's referring to himself, but you will not see it. People will tell you there he is or here he is, but do not go running off after them. For the son of man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the son of man. People were eating, they were drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. And it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left for Sodom or left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the sun, on the day the son of man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go back down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? They asked. And Jesus replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. So I want to make five observations about this text and about what Jesus says. And then five applications Here's the, here's the first observation. Number one, the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. You guys are like, wow, that is brilliant, right? The, the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. So Jesus, throughout his ministry and his teaching, his thesis, the Jesus thesis is the kingdom of God is at hand. His miracles are about that. His teachings are about that. His parables are all about trying to illustrate and teach about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is essentially the the realm where things are the way that God intended them to be. And God's love and God's justice are put on full display. And the Pharisees in this time, they, they make a clear observation. Jesus, these things that you've been talking about and teaching about and the stories you've been telling, your, your healing and your miracles, The world's not like that yet. So when is the kingdom going to come? And the observation is that it's not the way that it's supposed to be. We see and experience this today. It's called the news or the Facebook, right? (laughs) Things are not the way that they're supposed to be in the world. We, We see war, destruction, turmoil, disaster, politics. All of those things are on a bigger scale, right? But we all experience it on a personal level too. Every single one of us in our lives. There's conflict, there's division, there's the consequences of the poor choices that we've made. There's the consequences that we deal with of the poor choices that other people have made. There's pain, there's heartbreak and heartache. There are mean people 
everywhere. There's manipulation. There's dissatisfaction that we feel in life. There is frustration. There are instances where we're lied to and it's infuriating. There's disease. There's sickness. The world's not the way that it's supposed to be. The world's not the way that God wants it to be. It's not the way that God promised it would be. That's observation number one. Number two, according to this text, is that Jesus will return, but we don't know when. We don't know when. Jesus said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. And people will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. For 2,000 years, people have been predicting the end of, wor- end of the world and the return of Christ. And every time, they've been wrong. Has anybody experienced the end of the world yet? I just want to make sure that that... No, you haven't. Put your hand down, right? Nobody's experienced that because all the predictions have been wrong. Jesus says, don't go running after them. I remember when I was a kid, there were all these TV specials about Nostradamus and there was spooky music. Nostradamus was a 16th century philosopher and self-proclaimed prophet. And he wrote a book called The Prophecies. And apparently, uh, according to the TV specials that I watched when I was 12 with spooky music, Nostradamus predicted all the horrible world events and he predicted the end of the world. It hasn't happened yet, right? I don't think Nostradamus was correct. Uh, Remember in 2012, anybody remember this? There was this whole thing about the end of the Mayan calendar and the world was going to end on December 21st, 2012 because the Mayans ran out of paper at some point. (laughs) So if if you went into a bookstore, a bookstore was a place where you could go to buy actual books and see them with your own eyes. If you went into a bookstore, right, there was a whole section. I remember going into the Barnes and Noble in Brentwood and there was a huge section on the Mayan calendar and December 21st, 2012 and the end of the world. Do you know what happened? On December 22nd, 2012, all those books went on clearance, right? Because the end of the world didn't happen. As long as there are people, there will be predictions about the end of the world. And Jesus says, don't stress about that. Don't stress out about that. Nobody knows when that's going to happen. Number three, third observation, the arrival of the kingdom, the kingdom's arrival, it shifts our priorities. Jesus says, it'll be just like this on the day the son of man is revealed. On that day, nobody who's on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. No one in the field should go back for anything. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. Here's what Jesus is saying, I think. Here's what he might say to us as an observation. The things that we think are the most important, they aren't nearly as important as we think they are in light of the kingdom of God. The stuff we have, our material possessions, our bank accounts, our accomplishments, our trophies of achievement that we keep, our status symbols, they're not nearly as important when Jesus is fully revealed and his kingdom comes to earth as it is in heaven. Fourth observation, you don't participate in the kingdom of God by osmosis. Jesus says, I tell you on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Jesus is painting a picture here that there are two people who've lived their entire lives side by side. And one of them will experience life in the kingdom of God and one of them won't. And I think he's trying to say, you don't experience the kingdom of God by association with a good person. That faith is a decision to trust and follow Jesus that each one of us has to make. Your wife can't make it for you. Your mom can't make it for you. Your friend can't make it for you. 
right? Putting your faith and trust in Jesus and who he is and his goodness and his love, it's a personal decision that each and every one of us has to make. You don't participate in the kingdom of God by osmosis. And then finally, the fifth observation, we can't control the conditions of when Jesus returns. There is nothing we can do to manipulate God. We can't trick God into going, oh, okay, now that they've done this, now is the time. When they asked Jesus about when it would happen, he, he answered, you may have thought this was kind of harsh when Jesus said, uh, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. But he's actually quoting a well-known proverb in that time, which sounds a little strange to us, but essentially this proverb is saying that something would happen when the necessary conditions were fulfilled. In other words, that means that, that Jesus will come back when the time is right in his good time, not in our good time. And there's not really anything we can do to change that. There's nothing we can do to manipulate that. Our decisions, our politics, any of the things that we do in the world, they can't manipulate when the return of Christ will happen. We can't control it. So that's five observations. And now I wanna to move to five applications. What are, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this? Number one, I think we are supposed to recognize the discrepancies. We're supposed to recognize the discrepancies. One of our callings as followers of Jesus is to recognize the discrepancies between how things are and how things are intended to be, which means we have to know how things are intended to be. If we want to recognize those discrepancies, we have to know the will of God. We have to know the heart of God. We have to know the words of God, the dreams of God. Karl Barth was a, a well-known 20th century biblical scholar who essentially said that if you're a preacher, you got to have your Bible in one hand and your newspaper in another. He's saying you have to know both. You've got to know the words of scripture and you have to know the events of the day. What he actually said was this, you need to take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret your newspaper from your Bible. Today, he might say, you've got to take your Bible and you've got to take your device and you need to read both, but interpret what you read on your device from what you read in your Bible. We live in a culture and I'm guilty of this. We're being discipled by our devices. We're being discipled by our devices. And if you only read your Instagram posts and you only watch videos on TikTok with experts and you only get your news from Twitter and blogs and cable news and, and you only form your opinions from what people post and what your friends say and what the local gossip is, it's really hard to recognize the discrepancies if you don't know what they are. And so one, one thing I would say for us as an application step is that each of us, we need to do an analysis of our prayer time and our screen time. If I wanted to be like cheesy preacher, man, I would say, I'd look at your screen time versus your scripture time. I'd, I'd still say it. I think we should actually do that, right? Because if we're going to recognize the discrepancies between how things are and how God intends them to be, we've got to know how God intends them to be. We've got to be people who are spending time learning the dreams of God for the world. That's application number one. Number two, I would say be alert, but don't be alarmed. Be alert, but don't be alarmed. This is, this is a shorter one. Be alert about what's happening in the world, but you don't have to be alarmed about what's happening in the world. My friends in high school, they were freaked out all the time and it was contagious. But there's no need to panic about the end of the world. There's no need to be afraid. Here's the deal. I believe, I truly believe that Jesus will return. But when Jesus returns, he's not returning to destroy everything, right? He's coming to fix everything. Everything that's broken in the world 
Jesus wants to heal it and put it back together. All the broken pieces that exist in our lives and in the world, Jesus wants to put the broken pieces back together. And and not only to put them back together the way they were, but to put things together the way they're supposed to be, the way that God intended them to be. Everything that's, that's hurting in your life, Jesus wants to heal. That's who Jesus is. So we need to be alert about what's happening in the world, but we don't have to be alarmed. Number three, third application, I would say act today, not tomorrow. Act today, not tomorrow. Jesus says, uh, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People are eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, up until the day the flood came. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But then the day that Lot left Sodom, that's when they were destroyed. And when Jesus says people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given a marriage and buying and selling and planting and building, he's simply saying that people were going about business as usual and they didn't see it coming. They're just kind of going about status quo business as usual. They weren't doing anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with uh, eating, drinking, marrying, being given a marriage. There's nothing wrong with buying and selling, planting and building. It's not sinful to do those things. Jesus is just saying they missed it because they were simply going through the status quo motions of life, assuming that they had an infinite amount of time. And Jesus is saying, you don't have an infinite amount of time to just go through the status quo motions of life. I've been reading a book the last couple of weeks and the the title is 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And the premise of the book is that the average person only gets about 4,000 weeks to live. Some, some people get more, some people get less, but the average is about 4,000 weeks. I did some math on that this morning for myself, and I'm already like 2,340 weeks in, right? So I feel like my clock is ticking. All of our clocks are ticking. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And I think Jesus might say to us, act today, not tomorrow. If there's something you need to do, act today, not tomorrow. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. If there's somebody that you need to forgive, act today, not tomorrow. If you need to apologize for something, act today, not tomorrow. If you need to tell somebody you love them, tell them that today, not tomorrow. If you've been waiting for just the right opportunity to tell your friend or your coworker or your neighbor or your family member that God loves them deeply and desperately, ding-a-ding-a-ding, that's the bell of opportunity. That opportunity is today. Act today, not tomorrow. If you feel like God's been nagging you to do something, if you feel like God's been calling you to do something, if you feel like God's been compelling you to do something, act on it today. Today matters. Number four, fourth application is to control the controllables. I don't think controllables is a word, but I don't care, right? I think we've got to control the controllables. And so my question is, what are your controllables and what are your non-controllables? Here's the deal. I hate to tell all of us this. We can't control God. We can't control what God does, when God does what God does, how God does what God does, why God does what God does. Those are non-controllables for us. I need to tell you something else. You can't control other people. You can't control what other people do when other people do what they do, how other people do what they do, why other people do what they do. Those are your non-controllables, but you can control what you do and when you do it and how you do it and why you do it. You can control your words and your actions and your thoughts 
and your decisions, those are things that are your controllables. And we've got to control those. There are a lot of arguments. Uh, there are a lot of arguments about when Jesus is going to return. And there are legitimately scholarly people who get in heated arguments about what this is going to look like. And there's people who call themselves millennialists and amillennialists and premillennialists. Exactly. It is funny. That's what I'm talking about. And I would just say, those aren't our controllables, right? I am a Jesus is going to return whenever Jesus wants to return nihilist. And I can only control what I do and when I do it and how I do it. Those are your controllables. You got to control your controllables. Last thing, fifth thing, fifth application is that we've got to pray and participate. To pray and participate. Our last application step is that if the kingdom of God is on its way, if Jesus is going to return, and if Jesus is going to make everything right in the world and in our lives, our application for that is to pray, to listen for the voice of God, and to participate in whatever way that we can. Uh, there's this simple, incredibly powerful three-word prayer that's at the very end of the Bible. I love it. It's a prayer that we can pray. Uh, at the end of the book of Revelation, uh, the apostle John writes this beautiful picture. He paints this beautiful picture of a vision of what things are going to look like at the end when God is king. And, and here's what it says in Revelation chapter 21. Clo close your eyes and just see if you can picture this. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea, but I saw the holy city. I saw the new Jerusalem and it was coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I'm making everything new. In other words, the things of God, the dreams of God, the vision that God has for the world, it will be magnified. His love and justice will reign supreme in our hearts and in our lives. And all the things, all the things that cause pain and destruction and division and turmoil, those things will go away. And then in the very last chapter of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, there's this three word prayer that, that closes out the words of Revelation. John writes this three-word prayer that everybody can pray. It's so simple. Simply this, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. And our role, our role as followers of Jesus, our primary application is in every situation, in every circumstance, in every relationship is to simply pray those words, come Lord Jesus, and then to allow Jesus to show up through us in every place is to pray, come Lord Jesus, and then to allow Jesus to show up in that place, in that relationship, in that situation through us. That's our application. And so I want us to spend a few moments in prayer this morning. And we're gonna pray that simple prayer. I'll lift up a few categories and into those spaces, I wanna invite us to pray that prayer, come Lord Jesus. And so if you would, if you'd close your eyes and bow your heads, 
just take a deep breath. God, today we, we are so grateful that there's a promise that Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, everything will be made right and new and your love and justice will be on full display. And all the broken pieces in our world and in our lives will be put back together better than new. And so God, today in this time and in this space, we lift up the concerns of the world to you. We live in a world that is hurting, that is broken. It's filled with war. It's filled with with hunger. It's filled with the realities of disease that are preventable. It's filled with people who don't have access to clean drinking water. And the list just goes on and on and on and on. And so today, God, in our hearts, we say, come Lord Jesus, and we lift the concerns of the world up to you. today we lift up our community to you. Where we work, where we go to school, where we hang out and spend time, where we sit on the sidelines and watch our kids in the grocery store. And God, we know from just observing life in our community that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And so we pray right now in our hearts for our community and we say, come Lord Jesus. Jesus. God, today we lift up our homes to you, our primary relationships with our parents, with our kids, with our spouses, with our closest friends. And God, there are places where there is pain and brokenness, where there's been betrayal or where there's sadness or there's frustration. There's uncertainty. And in all these spaces, we we lift them up to you and we say, come Lord Jesus. And we lift those up to you now in our hearts. Come Lord Jesus. God, today we bring our very selves to you our hearts, our minds. God, there are things going on right now that nobody else knows. We lift those up to you. There are things we haven't told a single other person and we lift those things up to you. We have fear, we have anxiety, we have pain. We have uncertainty about what our next steps are. We lift all of these things up to you now in our hearts, God, and we pray, come Lord Jesus. I want to stay in this posture of prayer. If you're serving communion this morning, I would invite you to come forward as we're praying and you can take your place, your station around the room.
When we share in communion, it's a sign of the arrival of Jesus in and through us into the world. So we take this bread that represents the body of Christ that's been broken for us, and we dip it in a cup that represents the blood of Christ that's been poured out for us. And as we take that in, it's a sign of the presence of Christ alive in each of our lives and hearts. So in a moment, you'll be invited to come forward to share in communion. You can also pray at your seat or at one of these kneelers around the room. So God, as we continue to pray, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out on us here and on these gifts of bread and the cup, that you would make them be for us the body of Christ so that we can be the body of Christ to the world. And so friends, this time is open. Uh, These stations for communion and prayer are open and you're invited to come as you feel led.